The Exigent Legal Tech Mashup Podcast is a convergence of differing and opposing points of view that bring together legal operations, commercial, data, and tech. In these lively discussions, we show you how alternative legal service providers, ALSPs, can help transform your organization by leveraging technology and data analytics. Listeners will walk away with an understanding of how this powerful combination can directly impact your bottom line, help you extend the influence of your legal department, and provide you with an understanding of how AI can be leveraged to help identify opportunity and mitigate risk. Welcome to an Exigence Virtual Online Innovation Summit for 2020. To introduce myself, my name is Simon Micklejohn and I'm the Associate Director for Exigence Asia-Pac Legal and Commercial Solutions that I'll be hosting for today. Appreciate that everyone, appreciate your interest really. Um, it's obviously a brave new world that we're living in in comparison to a few weeks ago. The impact of COVID-19 and how our industry has responded, that will be discussed at different points today and it'll be really interesting to get some of our panellists' views on that. So just to recap on the purpose of today really, which is really to bring together different perspectives, learnings and insights from both legal and commercial functions. And we hope that you'll be able to take some ideas back to your own departments that'll that'll make a difference. Wanted to articulate the reasoning behind the, the theme today. So we're themed today's sessions around mashing up legal, commercial, data and technology. And our goal through our speakers is to share real insights and practical applications of how we're evolving to solve both commercial and legal challenges, key point being legal and commercial, which ultimately optimise business operations. And look, we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers today, varying from general counsels to commercial stakeholders to legal operations people to law firms and alternative legal services and tech providers such as Exigent. So before we kick off the first session, I just wanted to give a little bit of context as to why we are running our fourth innovation summit and a little bit about the vision of Exigent for some context. So whilst on the surface, Exigent is our alternative legal services and tech provider, if you dig a little deeper, we're really passionate about transforming the legal industry and innovating to solve problems for both legal and commercial challenges and our vision with whoever we're talking to is to help improve business performance and to help us with that we've got a, a talented multi-skilled global team with a, a savvy stack of, of technology which includes AI driven and AI contract and document discovery technology contract management and compliance tools which are also driven by machine learning and AI and we've got a team of around 500 and that ranges from lawyers to contract managers to consultants to data analysts to tech people and legal admin people so a really broad range of people and that broad range of expertise blended with applying smart application of tech and analytics that helps us to you know solve problems which go beyond legal we've been really you know, fortunate and proud to receive some industry recognition along the way most recently with the australian association of corporate council as a value champion and also um, ranking the forester report for our contract management technology so on that note i um, introduce our our first session for today which has the topic of the art of analytics and using data turning data landfills into business playgrounds that impact the bottom line. Our panellists for this session, we have David Holm, who's Exigent CEO and Chairman of Bright Minds Capital. We've got Gary Cox, Business Improvement Specialist at AGL. 
Paul Lanzone, who's the Senior Vice President and Global Delivery Lead for DXC Technology and United Lex. James Limkin, Head of Commercial and Contract Management for Telstra Enterprise. And Rico Burnett, the Director of Global Client Innovation for Exigent. So Dave, Rico, we might go to you first, if that's okay, to, to set the scene and bring this to life a little bit. Obviously, data technology analytics are changing how legal and commercial functions operate. So Dave, perhaps if we go to you initially to help demystify the topic. Hi, everyone, and, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm based in, in the US, although you can tell that I'm a a Brit for my sins, so apologies for that kind of right now. We have been on a journey for some time where we started in terms of legal, and then we moved into technology, and then we moved quickly into an understanding that data was the great democratization of corporate culture. And that sounds kind of grand and rather mystifying, so I think I'm supposed to demystify that. I think what we're seeing in today's world is that data is something that's shared across all corporate areas. And the way I would describe the use of it is better answers faster. And what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, and what do I mean by democratization? What I mean by that is that in the past, if you say, look, as a, as a real example at a contract and you say, well, it's procurement's job to negotiate it, it's legal's job to document it, and it's finance's job to enforce it. I think that with data being available to all departments, I think those verticals will break down. And I, I only think that what's happening today will break down those verticals even faster than we ever expected. Because what data does is it allows you, everybody, to see the same kind of information. And the, the point is, why would you use professional historical verticals to make the best decision? I, I don't believe that that's the future. You know, as an example, Action has been sort of taking on technologists for the last, oh, crikey, four or five years. And our latest recruit is a master in a master in mathematics, as well as people who can do rapid product development. So what we're what we're doing is putting this into practice. And, and a sort of first example, which is just from Sunday, and it happens to be relevant to today's environment, is talking about contract risk. And what we postulated to this extremely large global corporate is actually the risk is a number. And if you, if you think that anyone's exempt from thinking data and numbers are not associated with risk, then, then you're, you're living in a sort of different world, certainly to me. So uh, we're seeing what this kind of breakdown of old professional verticals to make better decisions faster. And we'll come on to some examples of that, but I, I, I'm going to pass to Rico for, for sort of a, an opening remark. But that, you know, that is real. And, and I will tell you that, or tell myself even, that there are too many organizations that missed the opportunity for digitization and data, better understanding of data in the last decade. I, I think what I'm seeing today is an awful lot of corporates globally that have talked a good game about risk but have never quantified it. So what is a risk? Is it, you know, 1% of 100 or 10% of 10? And what is the accumulated risk of that? And what is my real corporate and commercial exposure? Those are very fundamental questions. In a way, and this is a bit controversial, but in a way, every contract is a bet. 
just happens to be a bet that's in that's codified into words. It's a bet that your supplier is going to deliver. It's a bet that the the clauses you put in each individual clause will or will not be enacted. And the accumulated number is a contract risk. On top of that is a portfolio risk, which way you accumulate that. And accumulated betting, and I, I know given that the Aussies are some of the uh, the largest sort of gamblers in the world, and certainly the second largest traded stock exchange is the ASX. Many of the Australians really get this, but actually applying it to this world is slightly controversial. So Rico, have you got any, you can tell me I'm an idiot now if you want. No, not on the recorded session, David. Uh, no, um, no, that makes sense. Hi guys, hi from, uh, from Cape Town, South Africa. I apologize for not being there in person, but um, you know, we have, we have big, big challenges facing the world today. So I'm coming at you from Cape Town and just to echo what David's been saying, you know, I've, I trained as a, as a traditional lawyer. I practiced law for eight years in the technology space before moving, moving to a role with Exigent. And, and as, as director of innovation, we see the data challenge frequently happening and in isolation and in silos. And our approach and the approach we want to get, you know, get a discussion going on today is really what is the right way to do this? You know, what is the right way to find value? Because otherwise it's simply, you know, it's simply a circular, a circular reference. And, you know, speaking about circles, we actually have bucked the trend and reversed the way that usual data strategies work. You know, so maybe we, we jump into what that means by, by showing you kind of what we believe to be the right way to look at data, right? And, and it really starts, as you can see on screen, not by figuring out where all of our, our data is, figuring out um, where it's being housed and what the right method should be to collect that. It really starts with asking ourselves what is the business question that we want answered, asking ourselves how this relates to our organization, and that's different for every organization. We then move on to figuring out where the data sources are that will answer those business questions. You know, that, that's, that's a journey of discovery of, of immense complexity or, or quite easy for many organizations. And then when we move past that point, the right data journey starts with then already hiring or training the data experts. As David was saying, we've now moved into a, into a position where mathematics and applied statistics are equally important in our legal practice as actual legal experiences become. As much as I hate to admit that, I never thought mathematicians would be as cool as they seemingly are today. From there, we move on to having those experts create that, that collection point, that data-like concept, which I think is now at the risk of becoming a trope, but, but the data-like is created before we even start thinking about, about you know, what we're going to put in there. When we get to the data-like point, and this is, this is fundamental and, and something I think the panel will, will discuss as, as our journey today continues, is at that point already, point five, you need to deploy that legal analytical overlay across the business verticals and those isolated different units where, for example, as David was saying, procurement draft the contract, legal, sign it off, and finance are responsible for payment. Only at that point should we move into collecting the actual data required to answer that question because um, bad data still remains remains bad data. So this this cycle is one that we think is the best to equip you in, in that journey of getting to the right point fastest. I think that's, I mean, it doesn't seem too radical to say that, but actually it is. We have worked with so many corporates that put six before one, 
and mm -hmm. where they start collecting data and populating a database without asking a very fundamental question, which is, so what? Why are we doing this? And it's sort of what one of our major banking clients started by spending six million on a contract database and populating it at $12 an hour with a summer student in Canada and then wondered why they never got to one after two years. And so I know it sounds counterintuitive, but we start with the so what question, which it sort of sounds simple, but it's, you know, why are we doing this? The data's there, you can find it. And so when you're talking about, for me anyway, when you're talking about data kind of strategy, you've got to understand why you're bothering in the first place. And it's so, so many, in so many instances I've seen in the last five years that legal departments suddenly think they can't decide if it's their responsibility or not. But they, they forget the fact that there's a good reason to do this and digitization is a huge opportunity. But start with the question. And we're going to come to a couple of examples of the so what and then what now. We, we, Enrico's team, which is, which is rather glamorously called the Mind Factory, and therefore he's a Mind Factorian, apparently. We mix those, those skill sets, but the, the four words that matter most are so what and what now. Don't, don't do data collection or aggregation or any, any of this stuff unless you know what you're going to get for it. I guess, you know, I, I'm an accountant, so I'm, that makes me, you know, significantly less intelligent than you look, most of you lawyers or all of you, but with half the personality. You know, the, so, if the so what, what now test really works for me. It's like, well, if we don't need to collect, collect this, we don't spend the money, that's great. But if we can, how do we then use it? And what, what's the answer we're looking for? Most companies and most teams have got a hunch about things that they don't know is true, but they've got a pretty good business sense of it. But I'll give you a great example. One of our clients thinks that somebody thought at the start of this process that sort of they, were, they had a low risk on their own paper because they thought sort of 25% was on clients' paper in terms of contracts. In fact, it was 75%, not 25%. So the tyranny of the hunch is, is real. So, you know, we, we've touched on, I think, what a right strategy could be. And, and again, we are very, uh, you know, open to the fact that the journey is different. And, and you know, our, our colleagues on the platform today will talk about their journeys as well and what, what is right for them and what has worked for them. We do want to share a few thoughts about how to get results from the data now that you've gone through the cycle, whatever your process might be. And this has worked not just for us internally in setting up our own business, but in the consultation, implementation, and, and tech development we do with clients. And a few points we think are quite pertinent, how to get the best results from the data. And, and it really starts with now that you've, you know, and, and that's, that's a deliberate typo in the first line. You know, it's, it's 3 a.m. You'll have to give me uh, some leeway today. But once you've created that lake, the data lake or that source of, of truth, make sure that the business knows it's there. Make sure it's kept active and doesn't go, go stagnant. That's a big risk in implementation. To get results from the data, you must... Can I just interrupt you for a second, Rico? One of the largest delivery companies in the world has spent 18 months creating a data lake. And you can actually create one in four weeks. The technology is perfectly well available. It, it, the Microsoft stack is perfectly well creating one. And what it means is you can add different sources and get a multiplied effect from that information. It's just like sharing a, sharing a lake. You, don't, don't be scared of this and don't think, for, if anybody thinks for a second that you need, you need to go and buy it, 
and, and it will be hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars to get this vision of data in terms of the technology. It's, it's really not a big deal. Sorry, Rico. No, thanks, David. And, and really, that's, that's the key point is it's usable, it's out there, and it gets demystified once you start working with it and using it. The next key point and something that we work on quite intently, David led with that statement, is understanding what risk means for the business. Risk is both a number and risk is a cumulative multiplier. So risk has a value attached to it. And a number of risks in combination, you know, aren't just the sum of its parts. You know, if, if you tick five of the 10 boxes on a, on a force majeure clause today, that doesn't mean you are 50% there. You know, the impact of risk across a contract at various stages of its lifetime, at various stages of economic value and of performance is different at different points. And if you don't consider that moving target um, commercial value from your data strategy and from your analytical strategy, it's much harder to achieve. And it can be different kinds of risks. I mean, uh, Gary is there with his barricaded in his room to keep his two and three-year-olds out. So the chances of them breaking the barricade might be two out of ten, added to the chance that, you know, uh, Rico's gin will run out is two out of ten. Well, two plus two does not equal four when it comes to risk. You know, I, I want to be clear, I'm being slightly flippant, but this is a law of probability and it shouldn't be to sort of dispensed with kind of lightly. And understanding that it shouldn't be dispensed with lightly is part of the next point too. Now that we have figured out we, we need a central data source and we've looked at risk, we must understand the perception of risk in other divisions and departments in the organization. Some businesses are quite sophisticated and they have a centralized risk view. They may have specific teams, but quite frequently, uh, if you look at just simply the disparity between procurement, legal, and finance, risk has a very different aura to it and risk is managed differently across those divisions. And commercial uh, analytics is, is quite hard unless you understand what that means for the different stakeholders in your business. And this is a discussion point, really, talking about what you see as risk, how you understand risk, and just understanding comfort levels inside the organization. Well, I, I think that's a really good point, Rico. The thing is, it's still corporate risk. And corporate risk is how much are we going to gain or lose from this? And it isn't for one like historical old-fashioned vertical, which might be procurement, it might be finance. If you don't see that, you know, that, that this is an opportunity to pull that, because it's the business risk that matters. The vertical risk by responsibility is, if, you, if it's viewed that way, I would say um, viewing risk as a vertical is actually irresponsible. And I mean, you know, look, it's a panel, so I'm allowed to be controversial, but it's irresponsible to the corporate in the sense that corporate has to take a view of the corporate risk across a range. And I strongly believe that these verticals will break down because we are trained in one vertical. And I'm, say, an accountant doesn't mean that I'm responsible for one vertical risk. The whole piece of risk is to accumulate those rather than to, to disaggregate them, I think. Anyway. And to be valuable is critical from a data analytical strategy point of view, because it must be a realistic view of what the data tells us. And that's where the combination of legal and commercial data is critical. The legal function aren't necessarily concerned with payment terms, maybe payment terms, but not the actual you know, contract value, payment amount. Um, the, these are 
co-joint factors that need to support that cumulative effect. Because ultimately, you need to consider what the audience, internal or external audience, would be and what their objectives are. Are you considering an analytical strategy and a data strategy because you want to improve reporting? You want to introduce more rigorous change management in the organization? Or you are working on product development or product delineation? All of those things are fueled by a different view of what could potentially be the same data set, but the objectives and the audience are, are different. It is the same data set. I mean, the way I summarize it is, is to say, imagine it, it, these are questions your CEO sh should and will be asking. So uh, you know, what, what am I going to gain or lose? It's kind of without being too unsophisticated, so forgive me, but that's what every CEO is really thinking. What do I gain or lose? The, 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 the kind of like the, the map of it is fascinating, but I want, to answer, I want answers to these questions. Should I be investing more in this geography and how much? What is my appetite for this risk in this kind of area? Are very simple questions. And I, I suppose I just come back to the CEO question. Don't tell me how, but tell me, tell me how much kind of thing and why. That's how I see it. I know that Rico gets frustrated with me because I, I keep saying to him, so what, every day. And so does his wife, actually. So there you go. Well, she does the what Who's now. Who's also an accountant. Yeah, she does the what now. She's, she's the accountant. You know, I, I wanted to be a politician, but the law did, did call. And, and fortunately, we, we have got a data strategy and we have got a way to combine those views and those strengths. Because ultimately, where you want to get results to is to explore trends and provide predictive analysis. That is how you will drive uh, commercial outcomes. Because once you can start taking the data, mapping, understanding, seeing those trends, doing some predictive analysis, you can see positive and improved commercial outcomes. And, and this we've seen to be true for every organization we consult with, every organization that, that we work with, that these models do allow for improved commercial outcomes. Of course, it's one thing talking about it. It's quite another thing showing you a little bit of, of what we mean. So we have a few of these um, case studies, but in the interest of time, we want to focus on, on two of them. And, uh, you know, David, this is, this is one that we, we worked on, which is having quite a fundamental impact on, on the businesses that we, we're talking to. You know, what are, you, what are your views on, on, on risk and value? So what we've done is in this particular case, we did an analysis of quite a range of high risk or high value agreements in a client categorize agreements by their value by their spend by their duration now what we've done and you can you can see the contrast of contractual value which is a number which is typically found in the agreement but more often than not as these agreements mature it's interaction with the financial data that you have the financial information which tracks the escalation clauses the renegotiated pricing terms given economic conditions so the actual physical number isn't contractual it comes from that that financial data source your your finance team your payment team your procurement function even but we have a number that is attached to the vertical the contract value and typically that's how we view importance or focus on our contracts and we've been working with the team of people that that simon spoke about in the introduction you now the guys that understand data science the ones that understand mathematics and finance and statistics and we've been working on algorithms that focus on the risk. So what are the risks in a, on a financial basis that attach to a particular contract? Do the contractual terms sketch a risky scenario because they are non-standard? You've not agreed to a good governing law provision. I think that's right. But remember, 
Regate, you know, sorry, it's having an internal debate here, but, you know, risk is, is, a, is a number times by the likelihood of outcome. And that is where, where legal really comes in. It's like, well, what is the probability? Do I actually care about a 1% of 10? Or do I care about 10% of 100? And then how do I sort of accumulate it? And I, I think it's really important that kind of to get across that these answers are a way of thinking, not a piece of technology. And, and, and that's a critical piece. If you, It really isn't about spending money. It really, really is not. It's, it's about tapping into that uh, mindset, I, I think. You know, that's what we've really been focused on. Mm-hmm. The technology is, you know, it's, 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 it's minimal. Rika, sorry to interrupt you. Carry on. No, David, critical point. And, and the product of that is really a visual that tracks the potential risk against the contractual value. And the purpose of that is to allow a client or a user to reprioritize where they put their most time uh, and where they invest the most effort into remediating that risk, negotiating those terms to be aligned with their contracting standards, or at least within an acceptable tolerance. So you can see the the, the axes uh, stipulating what the kind of midway is, the median between risk and uh, value. And everything that is an outlier, which is to the far right over here, are the ones that might not necessarily represent the most contractual value. But if things go south, and we have seen in the past couple of months that conditions do change drastically, and you are reliant on those seemingly standard terms, or you find yourself to be on the client paper, these risks are significantly more important than the actual earnings derived from that contract. And this started with that cycle we spoke about at the start. The business question from the client was, how do I improve my my strategy? How do I do better in uh, aligning all of my contracts? And we came full circle to say, well, the data comes from contract itself and, and the financial terms inside that agreement. So topic of the day, and this will be the our final slide before we hand over to our colleagues, is, is a quick case study on what is becoming quite mission critical at the moment. You know, large-scale contract analysis based on some kind of, you know, black swan event or, or a, a, you know, considerable impact on all manners of business. And this is a quick illustration of, of how we've approached these large-scale analytical projects uh, on the contract analysis uh, side of things. You know, client has got vast amount of documents. They need answers. They can't go full circle, deploy an expensive piece of technology by you know, a third-party contract management solution, wait for implementation, integration, all of those wonderful things. So we deploy that data strategy and, and we come up with these five steps. So, and they are easy if you follow them and if, if, if you, you have the business support to do so. You know, curation of a large set of documents can come from anywhere. You know, the contracts are simply uh, jammed into an, an approved system. That moves into a kind of preparation stage we are separated out. The contracts are, are, you know, ingested into a platform. Luckily, we we have one, and we'll show you a bit of what she does. Once it's ingested, you can actually extract whatever you need based on the terms that you want. You know, and then critical point of this is data gives you information, data gives you a value, and human intelligence curates and provides a quality assurance that makes it right for you and your business. From that extraction piece. We visualize, you know, and, and as David was saying, the tools are becoming quite ubiquitous. You know, Tableau, Power BI, ClickView, SciSense gives us that visibility over the portfolio of agreements to ultimately get to the real point. It's not finding the five provisions in my force majeure clause. It's actually, can I now perform a risk analysis 
you know, by subject matter expertise, in-house law firms or GCs, all of the people on this panel and, and viewing us today to exponentially gain speed and actually have this analysis provide value because I started with the right data strategy. So finally, and of course, I'll, I'll, I will hand over to Dave for a closing remark. Just leave you with a, with a quick uh, snippet, which is, which is a video clip. You know, Exigent's Scarlet AI-assisted extraction technology is, is playing on screen now. You know, so it's an unstructured data search capability, which means if we know what the business questions are, we, we are, have got a system or a platform that allows us to actually you know, view that and extract that. We can find results in mere milliseconds. Right? These systems can run at the background in and from our data lake if we've done the right sequence of steps, if we've started with the experts who build our systems, who design our visualizations, and then we collect the data, we could have something like you can see on screen. And this is a search for events of default across several thousand agreements. We found the 11 most relevant results in less than three milliseconds. And it can output into anything. You know, you can display the agreement, uh, which is a typical step, you know, which, which combines the contract management side of things with data and, and data management. And you are then able to actually uh, interface and interact and integrate with other systems and other business units uh, quite successfully. David? I think that's right. You know, look, we, this isn't an advertorial and never was meant, meant to be designed as such. But the fact is that the technology for discovering these things is dramatically different to how it was two years ago. I, I constantly have to ask people, is that right? Like did you say just seconds? Yeah. And so we just we think that the way to think about contract information is don't worry about the how. I mean, look. I'm sure everyone's got a nice car, but they've got no idea what, what goes on under the bonnet and how you get from A to B. And sometimes I think my practical tip would be to say, stop worrying about the how in how you're getting what's under the bonnet. It doesn't matter if it's six cylinders or four or turbocharged. Fact is, if it can get you there, think about why you want to go there in the first place. I mean, that would be my wrapper, to be honest with you, from my perspective. Start at point one, not point six. And too many people start at point six before they get to point one. We can now pass on to people much better qualified and significantly more pleasant than we can and I. So. A great setup, though, Dave, Rico. Thanks for that. Gary, we might go to you first. From your perspective, you're part of a task force at AGL. You're a business improvement specialist. Can you give some insight to some of those initiatives and just the, the, the why and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, sure. No worries. A bit of background for me. Um, used to be a practicing lawyer for, I think, just under 10 years, moved through to the commercial space and have somehow ended up in group operations at AGL Energy. So a big part of my job is uh, helping our operations work more efficiently. Now, and more efficiently means costing less money and, and forking out less money to third-party vendors. Hopefully, you have no third-party vendors on the call. Essentially, I'm working on a fairly significant project at the moment where we're, where we're trying to tighten up our, our contract base made up of about 500 active contracts, and we're following a data-driven approach. One of the things, that, or a practical thing, which has, has come out in, in previous projects and um, come out through this project as well, is that extracting the data, all the data is there, you know, we've got hundreds of contracts sitting in our contract management system. We can apply tools to pull out data that we need, but it's not coming out in a uh, usable format. Obviously, we can do a lot of data sanitizing, cleansing, 
a lot of hard work and interpretation to, to get those, I suppose, uh, Rico used the example of a default clause. Um, and I suppose we're not really talking about that, but it's more the commercial terms we're talking about. But a default clause, it's difficult to, on the base, uh, I suppose, on the face of it, compare the commercial viability or value of one default clause to the next default clause to the next default clause just by taking a blanket approach. Sometimes you need to look at them a bit deeper. So the idea which I've come up with is that we need to take a step back to our lawyers, to our commercial our procurement and commercial negotiators, and almost to start trying to take the approach of creating contracts which are ready for data analysis. Yes, they're great tools that can do that data analysis, but how can we support those great tools by being clever up front? How can we, firstly, first step, which I think a lot of companies are doing, start using your own paper. Because that means if you're going to start comparing default clauses, we'll use that example again, you know, most of the default clauses are going to be the same or a slight variation of the same if it's been negotiated, as opposed to in our instance where we're sitting with about 400, 500 different clauses for each, um, you know, as simple as a, a termination date is recorded in 500 different nuanced ways across all the contracts. So I suppose the date is fairly easy to extract, but something that's a bit more complicated, it just makes our data, we're comparing an apple with a red apple, with a green apple, with a bruised apple, with an apple that's still on the tree versus the apple which is on the floor. If we as lawyers can start setting up the data train and the data analysis process by coming up with a, I suppose it fits in well with the um, simple English approach to contracts, which we're trying to all follow in general. It fits in with that. If we can start standardizing our contracts, standardizing the wording, standardizing formats so that I suppose I've explained it so that when we get to the stage where I've got 500 contracts, I need to extract valuable information from it. That information which comes out is more valuable and ready and more ready to be applied to the decision-making process. So for me, that's my little tidbit. And I understand we have hundreds of contracts in our business at the moment, but in three years' time, those contracts are going to be mostly finished, filed away for historical purposes, and there will be a new suite of contracts we'll be working with. Let's look forward to those to that three years' time and make sure that when we have those 500 contracts in three years' time, those 500 contracts synergize nicely and we can actually compare one contract to the next contract, one risk to the next risk, one commercial opportunity to the next commercial opportunity without having to, to rack our brains too much. I'll, I'll leave it on there. So in summary then, Gary, what you're saying is you want to look yeah. forward to the next partner, not the last. Exactly, yes. Gary, just before I move to bring Paul into the conversation, you yep. mentioned in our pre-call that you're looking to recoup a, a serious level of spend. So just wanted to, uh, yep. to, to understand that. So you're collaborating with multiple stakeholders across commercial and legal. Can you just give a, a couple of quick comments on the goal? Is it purely about the, the spend, the, the risk? Can you just bring that to life? Spend and risk for us, elements uh, such as uh, safety concerns, HSC, I suppose in this particular current environment, those are even more at the forefront. So the task force is looking at all commercial, whether it's commercial risks, commercial opportunities across our suite of contracts. But the idea is that we're not, I'm trying to approach the project by not saying what outcome we want. I want to approach the project by saying, let's look at the data 
and see where we're falling short. Let's look at the data and see where there are opportunities. Let's look at the data and see where value is hidden and then come up with a, a, a plan to move forward. I, I suppose the key word there is optimization. We have a suite of contracts which aren't optimized. Let's understand the level of optimization or the level of lack of optimization and start using the data to answer those questions and, and move forward into pockets of opportunity. Can I just ask you a question? Yes. Let's well, say you've looked at, I don't know, safety or health and safety and it's a $10 yes. million contract or $200 million, doesn't really matter. If you attempted to quantify that, so what is the percentage of the likelihood of risk, this risk being realized? Yeah, so at AGL, we have a, a matrix of risk and it's, uh, it applies to every element of our business, whether it's someone who's coming to provide us with accounting services or someone who's coming to provide us with doing a major outage on one of our, our um, large generation sites. Whatever decision is made on the business is always rated on the same risk matrix. And that risk matrix has a significant value um, attached to HSE requirements. So it's, it's a centralized risk matrix. I don't know if that thanks, answers your thanks, question. Thanks, Gary. We'll, um, we'll, we'll come back to that in the, in the, in the Q&A at the back end because I think it was a really interesting point, Dave. But I think, Paul, if we could just bring you in for a moment. You're in, involved in a range of data initiatives that you've got, you know, TV screens um, across your, every office just about to surface data. Can you share your insights? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Owen. Hi, guys. I'm, I'm uh, in Singapore at the moment, so uh, enjoying the, the sunny weather at home. Quick background. So I'm with DXC and UnitedX. So if you don't know, DXC is a merger of Hewlett-Packard and CSC. We're a 20-odd billion dollar company. Let's see if we're still 20 billion after COVID. But uh, we're getting a lot of clients calling us asking for help in, in workplace. So it's, it's actually uh, quite okay for us at the moment. Uh, we have 600 lawyers and contract professionals in the department, and most of those are outsourced to United Elect, so it's the largest legal outsourcing in the world. We're about, I'd say, three quarters of the way through a transformation, although that's a moving goalpost. In the data space, we're doing a lot. So what I really wanted to talk about, which fits in very neatly with what you guys are discussing, is you know before analytics, how do you get to data quality? Because we've got... Right now, you know, I can tell you, looking at my screen, I've got 29.6 billion in deals in the pipe on 2,400 actual deals, and that doesn't include stuff under 5 million, and that's just the deal space. So we get a lot of data coming in, and it's not wasn't necessarily great quality. So I just want to quickly chat about, you know, a few things we did to improve the quality of the data. The first one is utility, right? You know, giving people useful tools, not focusing on data, chasing data. Good data is the byproduct of good tools. And if you get the good tools, you get the better data, you get insights, and then you make business decisions. So that's the methodology we use. We thought broadly about what, when you talk about business decisions, Rico and, and David on that slide, I mean, who's making those business decisions? It's not just the business and the GCs, it's all layers of our organization, right? Individual contributors are making business decisions, managers are making decisions, and managers, managers, et cetera, legal ops as well. But it's definitely not a legal ops end of quarter focused data purge that we do, you know, review that we do and gathering that we do. It's it's day-to-day data that we manage and those business decisions. And of course, it's also iterative because the business decisions change for us. So we have to, our models have to count for that, you know, changing business decisions and revisiting the models. So if you can see my slide, I'll very quickly just take you through a couple of things. One is, and they're all along the lines of 
the theory that sunshine is the best disinfectant for data, right? So one of the things we do is in our major offices now, we put what we call the legal wall in the days where we had aeroplanes and airports, remember that? I was sitting in Heathrow and, and they have a screen up on the wall telling them the SLAs for the flights. Of course, they were lying. It said all green. But we thought that would be great to actually have ultra high degrees of transparency with all of our data, not the really commercially sensitive stuff because it's going on TV screens, but we put these TV screens outside the managing director's offices and the meeting rooms in our offices and we display our the public deal data of our wins, you know, a whole bunch of other data you can see from that image gets displayed in real time. We're not doing anything on the data, we're just pumping it through. So one, ultra high degrees of transparency. A lot of other stuff around just weekly reminders, data doesn't take care of itself. So we have, you know, consistent instructions that are persistent, you know, automated reminders, preferably they're tailored to the individual. So they're not just an email blast saying, you know, make sure your data is good quality, right? The individuals have different types of data and our systems provide bespoke notices to them around their data and what they need to do and when they need to do it in case we're running reports. The third one there is we have region-specific emails. So not only do we put it on the legal wall, but our region leads who say they have they each have about 60, 70 people underneath them, they're gathering that data, they're looking at that data, providing insights on that data, and that's a, another tough thing to do, not just the data, but the right insights at the right time. They're providing that in a weekly update to the business. The business can come into our tool and look at the data themselves, but we also send that in an email with the insights on top of it, and then we send that email to everyone in the organization in that region so that the people who are using the data and putting the data in that system as lawyers and contract professionals, they're seeing that the business is seeing it and they're seeing that the quality will make a difference. Again, sunshine is the best disinfectant. HTML emails on the, the third, fourth one in that slide. So every time someone wins a deal, for example, we do this across multiple, you know, whatever we're working on, but in the deal space, we send, the system automatically sends out an email congratulating the user on the, you know, the individual contributor and the manager on the win, but also that goes to the business and it also goes to the legal management. And on the bottom of that email, a lot of the deal data is there, which, you know, it would only take one email from the GC or from the business saying, hey, well done on that win, but the margin is 1% or, you know, the data is wrong. Well, why have you signed a deal for 1% for people to start understanding that, you know, the business is using it. And then we're starting in April now, we're starting audits as well. So, you know, regions in their monthly operations review, when they report how they're doing for the month in each of our regions uh, in legal and uh, contract uh, commercial, they have a score on their data quality and that's presented and they'll have to explain if, if you know, the score's not great. So for us, it's, you know, we're doing all of the above, it's actually starting to pay off because the business is now coming to us where our quality is much better than Salesforce. Our Salesforce is inaccurate. So they're coming to us to find out about actual deal volumes, the loading, just on, I'm talking deals, but a lot of other things, the wins, delivery is coming to us to look at milestones and consequences of missing the milestones. But really, you know, this is telling, they're coming to us is delivery to ask us whether we're making those milestones. That's delivery. The people responsible for making the milestones are coming to legal to ask whether we think we're making the milestones, which is really telling in terms of the quality we're getting to and the type of data we have. So I'll, I've probably taken up a lot of time, so I'm a bit happy to connect with anyone if you want to talk more. I could talk data all day. It's a bit sad. 
No, that's awesome, Paul. That's awesome. I really want to come back to a few things. We'll break open the discussion after I bring James in because I know that Dave will be um, chomping at the bit to pick up on question a couple of those points that you raised. But James, if we could bring you into the conversation, I think your perspective will be a really interesting one for the audience. You're obviously the head of commercial and contract management from Telstra Enterprise, so a, a different perspective again. And you know, our team's been really fortunate to be involved in a few of the initiatives that you've you've got going on. But can you just paint a bit of a picture from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So my name's James Impkin. I've been in telco and IT for about 20 odd years now, so a bit of background. First 10 years was really I was an engineer, switch consultant, architect type of role. And then for the past 10 years, I've been in the commercial roles. So right now, I work at Telstra Enterprise. Uh, so Telstra Enterprise is a $6 billion business per annum, covering base networks, mobile, video conferencing, managed services, and many other ranges of IT solutions. In terms of some numbers, that roughly is about 10,000 active agreements that we have with our customers. And I have a team here of roughly about 70 people. Then we use Exigent as well to help support our positions. I thought I'd just touch upon where we've been and where we're going to, probably in three stages. So stage one was about five years ago where Telstra had all its contracts all over the place and we embarked on kind of the first step of digitization whereby using a Salesforce platform, we created a central repository for all those contracts. In those early days, this was basically creating some basic metadata around start dates, end dates, some TCV values, some funds, information, etc. And it's a basic ability to retrieve certain information from those contracts. The other thing we introduced in the last five years is really being a docu-sign in terms of digital signatures. So today, really, it's only really been basic reporting. And when we wanted to create new reports, we were doing some investigation analysis. That's where a lot of manual processes, natural manpowers go in there. But the benefits we've seen over the last five years, it enabled us to start doing the data cleansing and start aiming towards one source of truth, i.e. not having a contract across five different laptops, but having it in one central location accessible by all. Part of the challenges were, though, you know, obviously license arrangements for the software was a bit challenging. Uh, data migration was time-consuming with lots of reconciliation. Really, as well, the team are being acting more as contract administrators. And we really need them to move more to commercial insights and commercial leadership. So that was stage one. Stage two really has been the last 12 months. So where I said earlier, we were basically a $6 billion business with about 10,000 active contracts. The reality is it's really our top 10 customers represent $1 billion of that business. So 10 uh, customers represent 15%. And of our top 100 customers, which represent about $2 billion, so a third, 85% of those are on customer-based contracts. So therefore, having a heightened, more variety of risk. The last of all, I'd say, is in those uh, contracts, network services is the where Telstra wants to grow its business. So getting away from our standard mobile product offerings and our other carriers' product offerings. Again, that is where the biggest risk is. But when you actually look at which contracts have those services, it's really our top four to five contracts, which represent a good 60% of those services. So really over the last 12 months, what I've done with the team is really focused on top 100 customers. And whilst it has been a manual process in terms of servicing some key business and operational information, what we focused on is things like the financials in our contracts, looking at funds management, for example. We're particularly focused on expired funds. So we had multi-millions of dollars of funds which had expired. And so we took an option of do we cash those in and go straight down to the EBITDA line, or do we actually give some alerts to our customers to actually utilize those funds and do some marketing campaigns? Another focus around obligations tracking. 
So really, this is where we had a bit of a challenge as well because we look at some of our big customers and you can track in those big complex contracts, 1,300 obligations. But really what we said, let's focus on not the benign obligations, let's focus on the primary obligations. So it might be the top 200 obligations in those contracts. So whilst I thought we'd been focused on the last 12 months, again, it's still quite limited in terms of our reporting, our capability. It's heavily reliant on manual processes. So really, we're now in stage three. So that's like really now in the future. Now, more broadly, Telstra has announced to the market that it's got a huge investment in digitization. And this is where we're driving simplification of our products, eliminating our customer pain points and creating great digital experiences. And today, roughly, Telstra's got about 1,000 people just working on digitization activities. So the great thing about this is it actually gives some clout to what we want to achieve in my commercial team. So Telstra really wants us to be a data-driven company, like an Amazon, if you like, where decisions are made from data rather than anything else. And so this enables us to start accelerating our digital journey. So what this means for our contracts is we're taking a step back and we're kind of looking at what do we actually want from our contracts and having a pause for thought. Now, obviously, we're going to start looking at having a single source of truth into the data lake rather than having duplicate and disparate systems where, for example, you might have a it's a bit like what earlier Dave was talking about, breaking down a silo. So rather than having contract information, bidding information, financial information, et cetera, it's really having a data lake, which is a single source of truth, but not just our commercial group, but also the other groups across the organization. The good thing about digitization is it makes you think how you're going to change and get yourself ready for the market. So this has led a lot to standardization of our offerings and also meeting uh, some of those customer needs. So our customers are telling us they really want a kind of a, the head turns all in one place, not in a path where Telstra relied on some standard terms additions outside of our customer contracts. But also really what they want is standardized product offerings. So they want to be able to negotiate a few things those head terms, but really the product itself should have terms and conditions. We also want to have basically have centralizing of our pricing in those contracts. So in order to go about this, really what we've had to acknowledge is that we're part of an end-to-end ecosystem. So rather than look at different silos of Telstra, we really need to look at customer journey maps is one way to look at it, where we've got the end-to-end process from we go pre-sales activities all the way through quoting to contracting to project delivery to service operations and billing, etc. In terms of if we've got one data lake of all that information and we're reconstructing our contract to serve all different departments, where some of the benefits can come are for marketing that can run campaigns, when we get asked by our customers to look at benchmarking, they can straight away look at a quick cohort of customers, different price points, etc. From a quoting, we get speed to market. From procurement, we can link our contractual data into our procurement department. For projects, we can look at resource planning. Service delivery, we can quickly translate and take our contract obligations into service obligations. So therefore, we can start creating proactive service alerts to those people. We can look at some of the back office operations in terms of great automation, bidding, basically getting that same source of data, enable speed to market and getting our bidding up and running, look at credit management and age debt, looking at all our funds and service credits. So there's a whole host of all the different departments all can benefit. But it all comes back to reconstructing our constructs of our contracts in a way that serves a digital world. So really the Telstra approach today is we've been creating these customer journey maps but also we've been doing a lot of work around empowering the workforce. So this is more about making those people who are close to that information to be decision makers and not rely on the um, executives. 
And so this is all part of this agile methodology, which we're rolling out enterprise-wide. So we're using things like scrums, chapters, missions, chapter leads, product owners, and two-week sprints, etc. So all that kind of agile jargon, which is very much suited towards the software development world. So that's probably how we're going about it. So I thought I'd just touch on, in terms of wrapping up, some of the challenges that we're facing in doing all this work is we've got legacy systems. And so really closing the doors to those legacy systems enables user adoption to use the new systems we're putting in place. The other part is we need to worry about a hybrid contract. You know, it's not a greenfield site, so we have big existing contracts with existing customers, but they're going to have a mixture of the old and new. Uh, data migration, accuracy and cleansing continues to be a challenging where basically we have to do reconciliation of lots of the data across all our existing old systems. User adoption, I mean, if users can get away with not using a new system because it's quicker and easier and what they know, and they just pick up bad habits from their counterparts, that's what they'll do. So when we build these new systems, we have in the past an approach of build it and they will come, but now we're more moving the product ownership of the build into the actual user base itself. The other thing to be concerned there is where we're digitizing end-to-end across the organization, that means it's heightened awareness around security requirements as well and offshoring and privacy. So this is one of the trade-offs that we're having to see as well, where if you're going down that standardized product offering to your customers, you need to start considering you may lose some customers. So you need to be able approach of do have it strongly standardized, but do what you do very well. My last comment is, I guess from our experience, is you need patience. Change is slow. And filtering through all the different systems, onboarding other people, bringing customers on board. A comment earlier, you know, that new cycle of customer contracts or renewals is where kind of it, it takes time to filter through those systems. So that probably wraps it up for me. I know I haven't covered everything, but probably a bit of a throwing things on the wall to think about. That's fantastic, James. Great insight. I think we're going to open up into a, a more open discussion and take on any questions from, from the audience. Whilst we're doing that, I'll just ask Jen to launch a, a poll for our audience just to get a bit of insight to who actually understands the risks and opportunities in their portfolios. But Dave, did you have, I know you had a, a comment earlier. Did you have any comment or question before we take any others? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting, actually. And thanks, guys. Uh, that's been very insightful. I suppose... The question I, I sort of would pose is this, and one that I think I think I think often lawyers are too collaborative with each other with the business. But you know, one of the questions I often ask is, you know, who is resistant to this, and why should legal drive it? My personal answer is is clear. Why why shouldn't you? Because if you're working for the corporate, you work for the corporate. But what are the best ways of overcoming this? And isn't it odd to find lawyers talking about data? And, and how do you, have you guys addressed that? Well, from my perspective, Telstra, yes, our legal and commercial guys don't talk about more data, but in terms of how do you make effort, it has to come from the top. So Telstra's announced it at an executive level. I think that's what you have to do. You have to get the executive to say things like, we are shutting down old systems. Yes, we may lose business with our customers because we're standardizing it. It won't meet every customer's requirement. Obviously, the yield needs to be managed on that. I think it comes down to breaking down the silos between those different organizations and it being led from the executives. It can't be led by the legal team. In my view, it should be delivery-led, but also delivery-led with a customer focus and customer lens. Because if you're not quite sure what you should be doing, you can always ask your customer. But the other part is managing, well, what we haven't touched on is our third parties as well, is understanding the back-to-back through the whole ecosystem. 
And so I don't think it should be tool-led. It needs to be delivery and process-led and then tools come in to support it afterwards. I think that's right. I think the tools are just a, they're just a distraction. You know, it's totally right. To, I, I think that's right. You, you've got to close stuff down, but it's, isn't it answer-led rather than tool-driven? I mean, there's so many, so many icons on most people's desktop that they don't use anyway. And, and actually, you know, the, the answers are, don't lie in the tools. They, are, they lie in the thinking. I mean, don't you think? I mean, Gary, you maybe got a thought on that. Well, uh, well, I almost don't want to contradict you, but I will. I, I thought I'm not answer-driven. I'm problem-driven. So find out what your problem is and everything you need, whether it's a tool or not a tool or a person or a different way of thinking. It's led by what your problem is that you're trying to solve. And obviously, the, the problem is solved by the answer. But I think you start off with the problem and whatever fits the gap, whether it's a tool, a person, <laughs> close down the business, whatever the answer is, you're driven by the initial problem. Yeah, for, I'll, I'll chip in. For me, it's, you know, in a large legal organizations, it's it's obviously cultural, right, first before tools. So people have to get that we're business decision makers, not just lawyers or contracts professionals anymore. And once you've got the culture, though, at when you operate at scale, tooling is the only way. Like Really good tooling is the only way you're going to aggregate that data and having it be meaningful and get the right insights at the right time to the right people. Without the tooling, you can't do it at scale. So culture yeah. first, though. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I'm going to go to that. Culture is huge. I mean, it's the, it's the thing that we kind of uh, put a, a lower down priority at Telstra, that you need that cultural change and shift. But if you don't have the user, and really what's happened with Telstra last year, we've actually realised that because if you don't have the adoption, then it's been a wasted investment. And in actual fact, another waiver investment will come along with a new tool set to try to master, cover up the failure of the original one in terms of adoption. Cultural change is huge, I think. From a project management perspective, as uh, we roll out these new initiatives, whether they include tools or not, for us, a major significant part of our investment is the, the upfront communications plan, the upfront engagement with our internal customers, our external customers, before we actually do anything and make sure we've got them on the journey with us and taking them along. And I suppose Simon mentioned earlier, I'm working on a it's called the Contracting Consultants Task Force. The idea of it being a task force is that it's not just an element of group operations or elements of group procurement. We have members from across the business, corporate legal, through to people who work on the actual equipment to generate electricity, and essentially everyone in between who has a significant role on the task force, whether it's to give information or is it to help coerce, I suppose coerce is not the word, help encourage those in their teams that may be resistant to the change. So our task force is set up from the start to ensure that uh, change management is integral throughout the process. Yes, I'm, I just want to make a quick comment before we move on to the poll results. I think I read a quote today by James Governor along the lines of um, data matures like wine and the applications we use matures like fish which I think is, is quite true. I think the aging process for, you know, for data, if you use it well, is, is extremely valuable to the business. And, and, and I like what Paul was saying about if you interrogate the data and you have people being responsible for the quality of the information, right? It feeds into James's point. Then, then you can start demonstrating the, the ROI to have senior leadership and, and, and you know, the, the stakeholders up to the CFO, CEO level make those spended decisions on data strategy because ultimately you can prove that what I'm doing today, you know, will have enduring value. And it seems like the panel quite 
you know, all of us agree on that point. I, th- I think we can all agree on one thing, which is, does this strategy, which is much overused, make me more money or less? And, you know, we can think of, of a particular instance of a major, major corporate who wants to know more about their contracts until we told them more about their contracts. And we, we demonstrated savings of $91 million a year if they've actually done a, 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 an analytical process when they were negotiating the contracts. $91 million. The problem we, that we came across that was pretty shocking from where I sit was... 91 million a year and a business that makes margins of kind of 3%. And this was a, this was a, this was a knock it out of the park. This was easy. The problem that you often face is if you look at contracts that have been agreed, you're actually, and this is a really important point, sometimes it just feels like you're criticizing people. And in some ways, you can tell people to win, but actually you can't win their hearts because you're basically saying these are a portfolio of suboptimal agreements. They're inconsistent, they're poor, the terms are not market. And, and that is a difficulty in this whole space for us. And, and it was quite amazing, actually, to me, that sort of saying saving 91 million for one division alone a year was a challenge, actually. It, it wasn't debatable because the numbers made, were, were absolutely spot on. But that's, that is a real challenge for people that are looking at contracts from a data perspective. Because often things are agreed with emotion. Unless they're standard and they're on your paper, often the larger contracts are agreed through emotion and relationships and all those human factors. So I, I, I would just say it's not always the most popular job to look at agreements that people have signed. Yeah, yeah, no, look, uh, that's all you know, really interesting stuff. We're, we're running out of time. Everything that all of you have said has been you know, really valuable, and I hope that the listeners have got some value from that as well. I'm sure they have. Just in stepping towards wrapping up, I just sort of share those results of the poll. We asked the audience who are listening with us, which was, you know, do you understand the risks and opportunities associated with your contract portfolio? And 20% don't. 40% are unsure and 40% do. So um, yeah, obviously, yeah, f- from my perspective, that kind of yeah, is yeah, with 60% being unsure or not understanding the opportunity or risk equals opportunity for me. And you, you've all sort of talked to examples of how to approach that and, and shared your own perspective. So that's really useful. I think in wrapping up, I just wanted to leave everyone with a real tangible takeaway today, especially when we've been talking about data and getting to data and being able to use and analysing it. So I'm as part of today, anyone who's been um, listening in or tuned in, we're giving a a, a free um, week's access to the Scarlet Search tool, which essentially allows you to do Google Ark search across your document or contract portfolio set. So hopefully that can give our listeners some some value to find answers or analyze data from within a, a subset of their contract portfolio. Yeah, so on, on that note, I just want to thank again our speakers. It's been a, a great first session. Thanks, everyone, for your time. Thanks for listening to the Exigent Legal Tech Mashup Podcast. For more information, visit exigent-group.com. Subscribe to stay up to date with all future episodes.